Today's episode is sponsored by the American Chemistry Council. Chemistry creates, America competes. Hey, welcome back to Politico Tech. Today is Tuesday, October 10th. I'm your host, Stephen Overly. Arvind Krishna is the CEO of IBM. And as CEO, he's both grappling with the effects of AI and responsible for causing them. He's selling companies on the idea that AI will make them more productive and profitable, while expecting as much as 6% of his own workforce to be displaced by the technology. He's also pushing Washington regulators to hold AI companies accountable for the harm their technology causes, even if that stance exposes his own company to potential lawsuits and puts him at odds with others in the industry. On today's Politico Tech, Krishna insists he's not exactly worried about either, the displaced workers or the legal liability. Both are part of the shift to an AI-powered future, a transition, he argues, that is both beneficial and inevitable. Arvin, listen, thank you for joining us on Politico Tech. It is nice to talk with you again. I want to start off just with um, some of the comments you made recently about AI affecting hiring and layoffs and jobs in general there at IBM. There's been a lot of talk about this, obviously, this concern that AI is going to replace human workers. I know you've made comments in the past about hiring freezes or or things like that related to AI. I, I guess my question, and let me maybe frame it this way, in three years' time, will IBM have more employees or less employees than it has today? It's a really simple answer, Stephen. In three years' time, I would expect as AI plays out, we will have more employees. And let me start with the business rationale and then go to the underlying technologies and AI. The business rationale is what I think many people have misunderstood. If you are a more productive company, that means you probably have higher quality products or products at a lower cost and price point than your competition, which means you get more market share which means you need more employees to go fulfill that demand. And so you begin to grow because you're competitively advantaged. Now the question becomes, so let's take a programmer. If a programmer becomes 30% more productive, a lot of people jump to, oh, that means you need 30% fewer people. Not true. Right. If if our programmers are 30% more productive, that means we can produce more products. It means we can have higher quality products. It means we are likely to gain market share, so we will want to produce more products to gain even more market share. So I think that that is where people miss, misconstrue my first part. Yes, we are going to use AI for more productivity. That means there will be a displacement of roles, but overall employment, I fully expect, will increase, not decrease. Well, so I guess my follow-up question to that, because I, I have heard this argument that AI will make companies more efficient and that will actually lead to more hiring, and that in past, you know, uh, technological waves, we've kind of seen jobs grow on net. The natural question there, though, is some people will still be laid off, and those people may not necessarily be qualified for these new jobs, especially those that are highly technical. And so ultimately, you're still left with a group of unemployed workers with limited job prospects, which, as we know, has sort of all kinds of economic or political ramifications. How should that be managed by by companies like IBM, by the government? So let me just address your question very directly, first with the lens of IBM, then maybe with the lens of the tech industry, and then with the lens of the nation. So I'll try to do all three. 
So let's take a place like us. I think there could be maybe four, five, six percent of our employees as a whole who could get displaced as a consequence of what you're describing. That will take three to five years, and they may or may not be able to get retrained or reskilled for the other roles. Okay, but we churn six to nine percent a year. So a five to six percent churn over five years is in the noise for us because that happens automatically. So I don't expect to lay off people directly as a consequence of any of this. I do expect that maybe those are the roles that we don't backfill. And that is the statement that I made back in April and May, that I don't expect to backfill some of those roles. So it will naturally decline in one area, whereas I might grow at twice that rate in other areas. So as an example, we might take eight, 900 people out of one area of the back office. While we are hiring in that same period of five years, 8,000 programmers more. So that is the kind of uh, balance that will happen. So that's the perspective of IBM. Now, let me jump forward to the tech industry as a whole. The tech industry as a whole has four or five million jobs that are uh, unfulfilled. So I think overall, there is going to be more job creation, more job demand than there is any kind of uh, reduction because the reduction lies in what I would call repetitive white collar work. That's the only area where there is uh, any foreseeable reduction. Everywhere else, if you have a more productive employee, you want them. Simple question. If I have two people in sales, one sells 10 million a year, one sells 2 million, who do I want more of? The 10 million person. If I can give them a tool that makes them 12, I'll give them all the tools and I want more of them, not fewer of them. Does that make sense? This is what I think a lot of, pe a lot of people think about work as being fixed. It's not fixed. We would like to grow the company as long as we can grow it profitably and with the right productivity. Okay, so that's the tech industry. Right. Let's go to the nation. I actually hold this view quite strongly. About 60% of all roles in the nation are not going to get touched by AI because frontline workers, people who do physical work, people who have to be in front and do things, you know, whether you think of warehouses, dock workers, taxi drivers, nurses, restaurants, we can go on and on. There is no reduction in that 60%. By the way, we saw it during the pandemic because the, my 60% comes from the people who really had to still go to work every day. Now you're left right. with 40% where you say, okay, if the work could be remote, that probably is more white collar than, than uh, frontline. In that 40%, half has no ability to getting touched. That's all the programming, the people who do higher order decision-making, put that to the side. So then you're left with that final 20% where it could get, maybe a fourth of it could get displaced. So we're talking 5% of the workforce in the country. We churn the workforce at that rate, by the way, on an annual basis. So the question is, do we have to, over five years, worry about 5%? Probably. But the question is, then how much of that would just be natural displacement that happens as industries grow and shrink? Does that help at least uh, put the problem into something that is quite solvable and quite achievable, I think? By the way, in all this, what we're missing is we probably create 10 to 20% job growth. And then how do we satisfy that will become the bigger question. I go to a simple example. Internet came in 1995. There's 5 million web designers now. That was not a job that existed before 1995. I guess my question, though, is 
you know, those 5 million web designers now, a portion of them who, who came to employment during this last tech wave may be replaced by AI. And how do you retrain even those technical workers, let alone non-technical workers, for new jobs of the future? You know, there's, there, fr- frankly, it just seems like there's not a very good track record uh, of doing that. Because retraining in the end has to be done through national and education policy, not just by a given company. So could we take an average web designer and make them into a person who deploys AI? I have 100% confidence that we can and will do that. Okay. But if I have somebody who's answering a phone and that job gets replaced by AI, that's a rougher and tougher reskilling role. Now you have to ask the question, how many such people do we have? It's a much smaller number. Many of those jobs have been getting offshored over the last three decades in any case. So yes, those are the ones which I think are more likely to get uh, replaced, not really the web designer. So you're right, the web designer will get more productive. They can now do an image in a minute, whereas it used to take them an hour. I got more web pages for them to do. So I don't think that they will actually lose their roles just because there is more tools for it. I'll give you an example. We have teams who do advertising. To do a new image used to take a month. Now, with some of the tools from companies like Adobe, they do it overnight or on a weekend. That doesn't mean we need fewer of them. It means I can have more effective advertising. Does that help? See, And I think people mistake this, this aspect. There is a lot of work yet to be done. There is a lot of work that goes uh, unfilled because in the end, there is an expense envelope. You can't exceed a certain amount. Otherwise, you're not a business. So now we can do much more into that long list of where you want to get done. We'll be right back. The Biden administration is moving forward with a slew of new regulations that put products like semiconductors, electric vehicles, modern healthcare technology, and clean energy at risk. Chemistry is essential to our modern lives, creating products to help foster a more sustainable and competitive future. The Biden administration must change its course and work with manufacturers on science-based policies that protect American innovation. Learn more at chemistrycreates.org. Well, let me um, switch to another aspect of AI. I know IBM has been leading a lot into generative AI lately, which obviously is a, a huge and growing field within the space. And there was an announcement the company made recently to provide essentially some legal cover for customers who might be accused of IP infringement. I should say, I, I know Microsoft has done done something similar. How much liability is that taking on for your company? And do you just view that as necessary to kind of get, get more folks using these models? So, Stephen, if you don't mind, I want to start off with, because I and IBM have been a proponent for certain principles that should be there as we think about what are the policies that nations should embrace around AI. And I believe there are three, so I'm not going to belabor the many longer lists we can do, but that's a longer conversation, just three. One, we should all try to have open innovation, not just closed. That doesn't mean open only, that doesn't mean closed only, but allow for both. And that is a a point against some people who argue that AI innovation should only be in a closed model because it's too dangerous to have open AI innovation. Au contraire, 
open agenda created more transparency and more secure systems in the past. The second is around accountability. People who create AI should be accountable for what they have created. 2,000 years of economic history have shown us that if you're legally liable for what you create, it tends to create a lot more accountability. So it's a way to put teeth into the word accountable. So if we produce the AI, then if I'm willing to take liability, that generally implies you've done a better job looking at how we have trained it, a better job thinking about how it's being deployed, a better job thinking about are we really uh, trampling, whether by accident or purposefully on anybody else's copyright or intellectual property, et cetera. So in the world of enterprise software, those of us who provide it have always given indemnity to our clients to say, if somebody sues you that there is something in that original source code, that's our problem. How you use it, that's your problem. Meaning if you use it for something that is illegal, that's on you. But if somebody says in the, in the origin of what you are using, there is something that is a, a trampling on somebody else, we have always said, then we will stand in the way of that and defend that fully. That's our liability. That's what we're doing in the case of the AI models also. If it's a model produced by IBM, then we will stand there and say, hey, you can look at us to defend you uh, for anything that you get sued against. Yes, I do believe that that will um, accelerate the market. And I do believe that it sets a uh, uh, precedent. Not everybody is doing it, but some people are. But we urge that everybody should be accountable. Now we can debate how do you make people accountable. Well, so I, I do want to debate that because I'm fascinated by this topic of accountability. As you well know, it has come up in the tech space a lot in recent years, um, usually in a social media or internet context. Um, and here we are exploring it uh, with AI, which I think is fascinating. Uh, you said, you know, the indemnity is for the original code and, and material provided by IBM and the use cases on you. Are, are there uses of your AI model that you're telling customers are just like completely off limits? So um, we don't run a big public model, Stephen. So in the sense, I don't have a, billions of people coming and trying to ask it all kinds of stuff. So I don't need to go ahead and put those kinds of filters and constraints on what we do. We tend to use our AI in B2B use cases where our clients, by and large, and I'll say with one exception, are not really in a B2C use case. That leaves customer service as the one case which is B2C. I don't really see it come up that we are trying to stop those use cases. But we want to give them confidence that if by any chance, and I use the example from music and literature all the time. I mean, we'll stay away from journalism because that's very personal to you and all of you. But in music, if I replace somebody's song for my personal entertainment, that's considered completely legitimate assuming that I purchased it or I'm using an appropriate streaming service. If I play it in a public forum, I am supposed to give some royalty back uh, to the original distributor or producer or artist. And yes, it's sometimes small, but, but you do have to give something back. That's what copyright law has kind of arrived at as fair. Ditto in literature. I think it's 99 years, if I remember. The writing is the... the is under copyright for 99 years, and then it becomes in the public domain. What are those rules in this space for the training material? I think that's a nice open question, and that's really what we're trying to say, that we believe you should be accountable, and we should, as a society, 
So that now is public policy. We can have a voice, but we are not the owners of that. Congress and uh, the federal government are the owners of that. And that's why we are encouraging them to think about what are the rules for accountability. Does that? I'm sorry for such a long answer, but that's really what you're trying to get at. No. Well, no, it's an interesting point. And B2B is business to business for, for our listeners who, who are maybe are not as versed in the, the lingo of business and tech. I guess my question then, you know, is there a scenario where, you know, your AI model could be abused in a way that IBM would pay the price? You know, it doesn't, from what you're describing, it doesn't sound like you, you see yourself as exposed in most use cases. I wonder, you know, for instance, in, in terms of a business to business example, there's concern about like bias in HR hiring, for instance. Um, but, but, I, but I wonder if, if there's a scenario where, as CEO, you're thinking, if our technology is used in this way, like we could, we could be on the hook. Uh, look, that comes up today. So let's go pre-AI. Let's just go to enterprise software today. Every now and then, we get sued probably a few times a year, maybe a few dozen times a year by somebody who believes, and not maliciously, they believe that we're infringing on their intellectual property. Maybe we have misused something. Maybe we have accidentally, without uh, realizing it, uh, trod on their IP. Those things happen. We win some, we lose some, right? So that is how the system plays out. But when you lose, you typically then start getting more careful about, well, where did we get this code from? By the way, forget code. Did we by happenstance uh, trot on somebody's patent portfolio without realizing that they own that intellectual property? That happens as a matter of course. So it's less in the use case, it's more on did we create something in the model and in how the model may create an answer that is infringing on somebody's intellectual property? That's kind of what we are protecting against. Now, if you want to use it to do something illegal, we're not protecting you on that. Like if you turn around and say, I'm going to use it to go target and give loans in a subprime way to people who should not be getting credit, that's on you, right? Now, right. if we are biasing the answer that that was not your intent, but that is how the answer comes out, yeah, probably we could get sued for that. And so we are willing to take on that risk. But I also have some confidence in our clients. I don't expect our large banking clients are trying to do that. So then if it happens, it's accidental, and then we've got to work through what, what is happening there to see if that makes sense. To, I can't imagine that a uh, position on accountability makes you super popular among uh, tech CEOs. Um, look, um, if I look at what has been how the internet, cloud services, social media have evolved, um, you can debate whether there should be more or less accountability. Um, you're right. It doesn't probably make me very popular amongst everybody. But there are some, as you pointed out, Microsoft has embraced a level of accountability uh, with some constraints and guidelines. But I think that people are realizing that uh, the moment you're talking about critical infrastructure and critical use cases, um, the, the bar to go get deployed increases. Look, I mean, like if I needed something to summarize my email, I'm not sure I would worry a lot about accountability there. But if I'm using it to make uh, hiring decisions, yeah, probably accountability matters. 
Does that apply? Um, I'm just thinking now, you know, to the data that goes into training AI algorithms. There's a lot of focus, as you know, on copyright and IP considerations when AI is trained on, you know, trained on uh, creative works, for instance, um, and and questions that raises about copyright issues. Where do you stand on that? Well, that is why we say, what is the fair use? So when we, for example, train code models, are we training them from open source or are we training them by leveraging somebody's proprietary code? When we think about uh, chemistry, are we training it by using what's in the literature or are we training it using somebody's proprietary formulations? If you do proprietary formulations, that may be a great way to kind of test out this, what I'm talking on accountability. They may have published a paper on it. That's fine. If the paper is in the literature, you're allowed to read the paper. Maybe you trained your AI on it. Are you 100% sure you didn't now tread on somebody's underlying patent, which says that formulation, even though it's publicly accessible, actually you have to go pay patent rights to somebody in order to be able to use it. And so those are all the questions that come up in the real world that I think the prior era has not sort of tried to tackle um, because of the way that the internet legal frameworks evolved. And I'm asserting that now that we are looking at the actual content a lot more, because model creators can't claim that we didn't create the model. A model creator created the model. That is content now. That's not just an underlying distribution platform. So there is, I think, a higher onus now that has been there before. Got it. Yeah, it does feel like we're in a, a unique moment with with AI, but really with tech in general. I mean, I in many ways this feels like one of the biggest tech shifts that we've seen. You know, and we've seen a lot of them: the internet, mobile. You know, you name it. Oh, I think it's in the top three of the last thirty-five years. If I go nineteen ninety to today, I think there's only three, including this current one of generative AI that fit that. Internet, nineteen ninety-five. Smartphone, more than mobile, 2007. And it's interesting, 95 to 2007 is 12 years, 2007 to 22 is 15 years. It kind of looks like it's that once in a decade, once in 15 years kind of phenomenon that will take five to 10 years to play out. The internet took five years to play out, let's call it that. I think smartphones uh, got embraced faster, maybe three years. And this one, let's see how long it takes. But it's in that, it's in that level of transformation. Ten years from now, we're going to look back and say, "Oh my God, this is the fabric of everything." I think this, that's just the reality. What are we going to be talking about in ten years from now? Quantum computing. Another area I know IBM is heavily involved. Well, we're, we'll have to have you back to uh, to talk about quantum. But Arvind, you've been great. I appreciate you taking time to talk with us today. My pleasure, Stephen, and happy to come back and talk on Quantum in a few weeks or months. That's all for today's Politico Tech. For more tech news, subscribe to our newsletters, Digital Future Daily and Morning Tech. Music in today's episode comes from the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder. Our senior producer is Annie Reese. Our editors are Steve Heuser, Daniela Cheslow, and Louisa Savage. I'm Stephen Overly. I'll see you back here tomorrow.